Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We are in chapter 3. But before we get into chapter 3, I do want to touch upon a couple of things. Uh, The first of which is this whole idea that I was talking about yesterday evening of the New Covenant. I have gotten some responses from you. And what is so important for us to understand is that when Paul is talking about the New Covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, what is he talking about? But the New Testament. Now, I say Testament, why? Because there wasn't a Latin term that translated covenant. The best the early church can do was testament. So why do we have the Old Testament and New Testament? Well, because in the end, <laughs> what is the Old and New Testament testifying to? But God's covenant love, right? And what is a covenant? A covenant, yes, on one hand is a, a compact agreement, but in the light of the revelation of God, it's so much more. It's not this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. Okay, so God sends his son, Jesus Christ, and he testifies on behalf of the greatness of covenant love. And so we don't call the two books in the Bible Old Covenant and New Covenant. We call them Old Testament and New Testament. But if we're going to understand testament, we must first understand covenant. And once we understand that the covenant is caught up in Christ's blood, this is the blood of the New Covenant, then we begin to understand the importance of Christ's words in John chapter 6 in the Gospel of John chapter 6, when he says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And this is why in the first few centuries of the church, when there was any talk about the New Testament, it wasn't the corpus of books, but the corpus of Christ, the body of Christ. If you want to get really specific, we have to remember that we don't have the New Testament until the end of the fourth century, right? books that comprise the New Testament at the end of the 4th century were being read during liturgy, but we don't have the canon of the New Testament per se until the end of the 4th century in the Council of Hippo in roughly 394-395 AD. So, all very important to appreciate because it does draw the whole discussion back to the Eucharist. And this isn't me carrying on, this is what the text says, right? This is what the text says. And so, cannot emphasize that enough when you want to understand really what the New Testament in the words themselves are all about. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about is something that came up in a conversation the other day, and I was made to go back to it. You know, we have this propensity to defend ourselves, don't we? I mean, I know I've done it before. And as long as you're vested with the flesh, which we all are, you have done it as well. (laughs) I think on a natural level, 
it's a human instinct, right? We just defend ourselves. Imagine if you defended Jesus Christ with as much tenacity as you defend yourself. Imagine if you were disposed to defend Jesus Christ with as much tenacity as we so tend to defend ourselves. Would this not world be all the more Christian? <laughs> now, I'm not projecting any one judgment upon any one individual. Here, I'm just speaking to human nature. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm challenging myself. Like I said, I have that tendency to want to defend myself. But only in and by God's grace can I forget about myself and concern myself first with the person of Jesus Christ and the church he came to establish. Again, imagine the world we would live in if we were more concerned about other than self. And is this not an expression of love itself, right? What is love? To will the good of the other for the sake of other. And in its Christian context, right, to will the good of the other for the sake of conversion, for the sake of salvation, for the sake of ultimately giving glory to God in all that we do. Now, this is what our Christian vocation is about. So, are we busy defending ourselves over and above everything and everyone else? Or, or are we more concerned with defending Jesus Christ? A very, very important question in the Christian uh, spiritual life. Okay, with that, let us now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read verses... Oh, let's see here, um, 7 to 18, which is really uh, the rest of chapter 3. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. Now, if the dispensation of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as this was, will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor? For if there was splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed it in splendor. Indeed, in this case, what once had splendor has come to have no splendor at all because of the splendor that surpasses it. For if what faded away came with splendor, what is permanent must have much more splendor. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not see the end of the fading splendor, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they, read the, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Woo! We have some rich verses there, huh? First and foremost, we should highlight what St. Paul is doing here. He's posing a question. And why is he posing a question? Because he is a great teacher, and he understands that good teachers are constant in posing questions 
because to pose a question gets the receiver of the question thinking critically about the subject matter at hand. This is why you have the likes of, say, a St. Thomas Aquinas spending so much time doing what? Exploring the faith in light of questions. So verse 7 and verse 8 is one big question, huh? (laughs) Now, if the dispensation of death carved in letters on stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look in Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as this was, will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor? He's saying, consider this in light of that, right? (laughs) And in doing so, he provokes both mind and heart to go deeper. And what is his message here? Well, that the new covenant ministry of Paul supersedes the old covenant ministry of Moses, right? Certainly, Paul mediates righteousness through the Spirit, not condemnation through the uncompromising standards of the law. Now, it's interesting here as in verses 7 to 18, you have such words as splendor, brightness, glory. All of those words are derived from the same Greek word. Why? because that Greek word communicates something transcendent, the splendor, the glory, the brightness. What is St. Paul talking about but the call to holiness? What is that great analogy that comes to us from Donald DeMarco? (laughs) When he's reflecting upon holiness, he says, holiness is like a lighthouse. It does not shoot cannons or send off flares to make its presence known. It just shines in the darkness, right? It just shines by its very presence. I get the question asked quite a bit, Joe, what are we to do today? It's so dark. Well, embrace your call to holiness. Embrace your call to piety. Embrace this call that St. Paul has been putting before us, and you will shine. You will be fulfilling your vocation. You will be bright, glorious, and you will shine with splendor. That is what Paul wants us to see. This reference to Moses' face is uh, quite provocative. When you go back to verse 12, this is really interesting. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not see the end of the fading splendor. What's going on there? Well, It is pretty clear that Moses was aware of the brightness that was fading. Was he experiencing shame? I find this point striking because I think down deep, we know when we are distant from God. We know when our splendor is fading. How do we cover it up? How do we put a veil over it, huh? What do we do to put a veil over it? You know, I was just talking about this propensity we have to protect ourselves as opposed to defending Jesus Christ and or just the virtue of truthfulness and in identifying something for what it is, even if that includes our sin. Essentially, we protect our sin. We cover ourselves up. Why do we do that? Should we just not be the person who God is calling us to be? Why do we spend so much time protecting the false self, protecting something that we are not. This is not humility, my friends. This is not what we are called to. 
by the grace of God go I, by the grace of God go I. Now, most scholars want to also interpret this as how this is symbolic of the old covenant, right? How behind the veil, ultimately, the destiny of the old covenant will itself pass away over time. Certainly, this is at the heart of this larger narrative, is it not? And then we have verse 16. But when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is moved. Turns to the Lord. Certainly this recalls how Moses removed the veil every time he turned to the Lord to receive a new revelation. Okay, so he's clearly, that is St. Paul, referencing to this conversion that takes place with a turning. In many ways, Paul is referencing this because it prefigures Christian conversion, does it not? Which involves a turning to the Lord to embrace the new revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that word repentance mean? The Greek there is metanoia. It means to turn away from sin and at once to turn to the Lord. So when you turn to the Lord, you are turning away from sin. Our conversion is about a turning away from one thing so as to turn towards another thing. And that thing is not a thing, but someone, the person of Jesus Christ, right? So Paul wants us to see how when Moses turned to the Lord, this was very much a prefigurement to Christian conversion. Now, speaking of conversion, what is at the heart of conversion? Who gives life to this conversion? Well, this is what Paul speaks to here in verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Spirit is fully divine, right? Co-equal in glory and greatness with the Father and the Son. This is what St. Paul is teaching here. And moreover, the work of the Spirit within us gives us freedom. Freedom. Remember that passage from Romans 8, 15, that we did not receive the spirit of slavery in which we fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption in which we cry, what? Abba, Father. We have been given the spirit of freedom, the grace that gives us the strength to love as we ought, right? What is the opposite of love. Well, what did Paul just say in Romans 8, 15? It is not hate. It is not anger. It is fear because fear binds us, does it not? Fear is underneath so much of our sin. You know, we tend to focus on all of the capital sins, pride, anger, lust, greed, sloth, gluttony, envy. We focus on all of these things as we should to overcome them. But we must understand that what comes before all of those sins is fear. We fear responsibility. We fear failure, accountability, responsibility. We fear. Why do you think in that opening proclamation of the, of the New Testament that, that comes in that great angelic salutation from the angel Gabriel to Mary, he said, Mary, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Up and down sacred scripture 
time and time and time again. What do we read? Be not afraid. Why? Because fear binds us. So we have this call, brothers and sisters, in our Christian walk to ask that question, what are the things that we fear? Do I fear what someone thinks of me? Do I fear failure? Do I fear responsibility? What is it that you fear? Identify that fear. Find someone who can journey with you, help you with this fear. You will find a new freedom, a new freedom. And be rest assured, my friends, we are only free when we overcome our fears. So the Lord is the Spirit. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit, my friends, is the protagonist of the Christian life, right? When we are weak, we're made strong in the Spirit. How about verse 18? This all-important verse 18, that we are being changed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. You see, my friends, like Moses, whose countenance was transformed by gazing upon the glory of God, the glory of the Spirit changes believers little by little into the image of Christ, who is the image of God, who is the image of God. We become more divine, if you will, the more we are a reflection of Jesus Christ and the virtues and beatitudes he calls us to live in. Does this not speak to that gradual transformation in Christ that I have talked about so much? Does this not speak to that verse that comes to us from Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 and verse 12, that we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling? Note, like his epistle to uh, the church in Philippi, he is speaking of conversion and being saved in the present tense. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. So just like when he says we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we are made to see that conversion is something that never stops. Remember, Jesus says, be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. You and I both know we are not going to attain perfection, as it were, on this side of the heavenly Jerusalem. But is it not a call to constantly convert, to identify the things that we need to work on so as to be more whole in Christ, so as to be changed more into Christ's likeness, closing that gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be? And again, we can say that person we ought to be because there is an is, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ entered into human history. He was a real person, human and divine, right? And we study him. We come to know him personally so that we might close that gap. Christianity is not arbitrary. It is not whatever you make it out to be. It is something to be studied, something to be lived, of course, but also something to be studied that we might go deeper and deeper into our faith, discovering that most beautiful truth. The more you come to know about Jesus Christ, the more you realize how little you know about Jesus Christ. Why? 
because God is mystery. God is mystery. Mystery comes from the Greek mysterium, which means the inexhaustible reality. God's love is inexhaustible. <laughs> God's love is inexhaustible. It is infinite. It never stops. It keeps on giving. What does Jesus say? My father does not ration out his love. He pours it out. He never says a little for you and a little for you and a little for you. No. He says, I give all of me to everyone. And how can he do that? Because he is infinite. And this should not intimidate us. This should excite us. This should be an invitation to us to go deeper into his mystery that we might discover the beauty and the greatness of this love, right? The beauty and the greatness of this love. And as I say the word beauty, and, and maybe this is more of a topical point when I read these verses from 7 to 18, isn't this about beauty? Really? I mean, isn't this about us asking the question, if we think something is so beautiful here on earth, how all the more beautiful is heaven, what we don't see? Right? This is what St. Paul is saying. If you think what you see is so beautiful, how all the more awaits you in what you don't see? Imagine that one thing that grabs your attention. Three weeks ago, there was a rainbow, and it was a captivating rainbow. It was a very pronounced rainbow in all of its colors. It just swept across the sky. And all of my kids came running to my office, Dad, Dad, you need to see this. It captivated them. It captivated me. I experienced this kind of aesthetic arrest. It just kind of had us all captivated. Why? Because it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And and what I found so interesting is the need that my kids felt inside of them to, to grab me. They wanted to, to share this beauty with me. What St. Paul is saying, my friends, is if we think that is beautiful, which it is, how all the more beautiful will be what God has in store for you. Oh, my friends, I don't know about you, but this gets me excited just thinking about what awaits us. And it should convict us to live a holy life. It should convict us to pursue holiness. It should convict us to, to embrace the trials and the sufferings that come away because of what awaits us. We scale rocks, huge, massive rocks. We climb mountains. Why? Because when we ascend the top, we now see the river beyond the river the mountain beyond the mountain, all of the interconnectedness that we just didn't see before. We see the beauty of the whole. We see the beauty of the whole. In the spiritual life, let us embrace the suffering. Let us embrace the trials. Let us embrace everything that comes our, our way in all of the minutia, right? <laughs> in all of the littleness that yes, we might be conformed more to the likeness of Jesus Christ, as St. Paul says here. Oh, and what awaits us when we reach the mountaintop? What awaits us? So many of our questions will be answered, and we will see 
as God sees. Mm, mm, mm. You know, all of this discussion about beauty, you know, my friends, these verses, and in some cases, their emphasis on the glory of God certainly has had many commentaries focusing on that all-time quote from St. Irenaeus of Lyon, the glory of God is man fully alive. And I want to um, note something here, and it actually is a correction to that quote. You may have heard me talk about this before. Now, on one hand, I have said, yes, the glory of God is man fully alive, but we should be aware that the actual quote is, the glory of God is a living human being, and the life of a human being consists in beholding God. So the glory of God is man fully alive, yes, but man can only be fully alive if he beholds the beauty of God. You see, this is what St. Irenaeus of Lyon, France, was after. He wanted us to understand that if we are going to give glory to God, we first have to behold God in his transcendent beauty. This is why St. Paul said earlier, and I talked about this over the past few days, we can only give glory to God if we live in the presence of God, because we can only behold something if we are in their presence, right? The flesh dwelt among us and continues to dwell among us, so let us abide in his presence, most especially in the blessed sacrament. All right, so the how of our transformation starts with prayer, in that living conversation with God, in that vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, whereby we enter into the mystery of that perfect eternal exchange of love, love given, love received, and love shared. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another day, another evening, for being able to reflect into your living word, your mystery, this vocation you have set before us to embrace the path that you have laid before us, whatever that might be that we might not be so concerned about protecting ourselves, but living out our vocation, giving glory to you, and when necessary, defending you at all costs. So, as always, we pray these things in your most holy and precious name, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.com dot org.